All right, well, Happy New Year, everybody. It is good to see you tonight. And uh, man, this is the first of 52 weekends in 2014, and we're off to a good start tonight. I hope you had a blessed Christmas, did you? Pretty decent? Wonderful? Christ-centered? I hope so, yeah. I know uh, between Christmas and New Year, I got to spend a few days with my folks out in California. Um, they're getting older, and they're aging as we all are, and uh, I want to take every opportunity I can to, to get out there and spend some time with dad and mom. They're the ones who first uh, introduced me to Jesus Christ and to God's word and raised me in church, and so I'm forever indebted to my parents, and I want to stay connected with them as they are in their golden years, and uh, we had a great time together. But I'm excited about the new year. I'm wondering, has anybody written 2013 on a check or something this week and kicked yourself because you knew you should have written 2014? Anybody else do that? I do it every year, and I just figured I probably will do it every year for the rest of my life. Just gets, takes some time, doesn't it, to uh, get used to living in a new year? And here we are. And so at New Life, typically uh, at the start of a new year, we, we have a number of guests because people make that decision, you know, man, I need to get in church, and I'm making some resolutions, and it's a good time of year to, you know, start out and start that habit, and so um, most of you I know, but we do have a few guests with us here tonight, and uh, if you are new to New Life, my name is Steve, and I have the great privilege of serving this congregation as lead pastor here. I'm under the authority of a team of seven elders, and that should uh, make you feel very safe. And that team of elders serves under our senior pastor, whose name is Jesus Christ. And so uh, we love Jesus here. And uh, he's our chief sh shepherd, isn't he? Jesus. I've been here for 28 years. I've been here since the very beginning of this church, even before the beginning of this church, as has Pastor Brian and Pastor Claude. All of us have been here since the mid-80s. And I get to work with a wonderful staff team that's just a dream team and some of them are here tonight uh you know jay you know Lori, who just shared dave dunning is right back here stand up for a minute dave dave's the director of our facilities he oversees everything that goes on in our physical building our campus and uh aaron over here is on dave's crew and does great work for us as well and uh who am i missing i know there's a few others here but um appreciate just being able to be part of a great team that loves the church and loves Jesus and loves you, loves the people of New Life. Um, I also serve alongside those of you who are members here, or what we call ministry partners of New Life Church. Without all of your praying and serving and giving and worshiping and using your gifts in ministry, without all of that, this church would not be very effective at all in carrying out its mission. So, I'm honored to be a part of that team as well, and everything we do here is a team effort. Really, it's, it's just a huge team effort. It takes all of us. A few years ago, um, God called this church into a journey, and um, it's a journey towards becoming what we around here call a gospel-driven church, or a gospel-centered church, and since some of you are new, and since a refresher never hurt anybody, I wanted to take a few minutes and explain what I mean by that. What, what is a gospel-driven church, Steve? Well, if you're like me and you've been in church for any period of time, you know that churches can become driven by any number of things, right? 
um, the personality of the pastor or the cool worship band or the building or a particular ministry program that's been around for a long time or some churches are driven by tradition. I know of a church where the focal point of everyone's attention and affections is the organ. I mean, they're all about the organ. That's what the people seem to be the most proud of, and that's what they're talking about all the time, and that's why they invite people to their church. Hey, you got to come and check out our huge pipe organ. So I guess you could call that an organ-driven church. But God's called us to be a gospel-driven church. And when I use that term, what I'm talking about is, is the leadership and the members of the church seeking to keep Jesus Christ and his gospel message front and center in the life of the church. So that what is most cherished and most prized and most treasured by the congregation is not the pastor, not the building, not the band, not the program, not a tradition, not the organ, but Jesus. That he is the most prized, treasured person in the church, Jesus Christ. So a gospel-driven church is a Jesus-centered church. Say Jesus. Jesus. It's a sweet name, isn't it? Jesus. It means Jehovah saves. Now we use a little diagram to kind of depict what a gospel-driven church is, and I want to take a moment and explain this. It's also on your uh, outline there if you want to um, pull that out and take a look at that. So right at the center, you see what? What is it? The gospel, right? In the gospel-driven church, the leaders and the people have come to the conviction that the gospel of Jesus Christ must be given center stage, must be given the spotlight in the church. And so when we sing songs, who do we sing about? We don't sing, how great I art. We don't sing, Lord, I lift my name on high. No, we sing, we lift your name on high, right? The gospel at the center. And, and, and by the word gospel, what we mean is the person and the work of Jesus Christ, especially his saving work, like we just sang about a few moments ago. His work of saving sinners like you and like me you're new here and you continue coming to new life and I, I tell people this all the time I want to let you know right up front you're going to hear a lot about Jesus if you don't like Jesus you're not going to be real happy here okay now we hope that you'll keep coming and you'll come to love Jesus as we do you're going to hear a lot about Jesus your students that you bring to our uh, middle school and high school programs they're going to hear a lot about Jesus Christ your children that you bring into our children's ministries are going to learn about Jesus and his story in fact our hope is that you know, your children might learn so much about Jesus that they'll be able to teach you a few things about our Lord. We look at the gospel as, as New Life Church, and what we see is, we see the gospel is like a diamond, a stunningly beautiful, multifaceted diamond that we want to hold up and look at and behold and marvel at week after week after week. We believe that everybody at every age needs to hear the gospel a lot. We believe the gospel is not just for non-Christians, although it is certainly for them, but it's for Christians too. Even God's people need to be reminded often of all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Amen? We need to be reminded of that because we lose sight of it, because life is busy and lots of, lots of stuff is going on in our lives, and we forget, oh yeah, God, Jesus, salvation. 
We don't believe that after you become a Christian, you should move on from the gospel to learn about other things and leave the gospel behind. We don't believe that. We actually believe that you never graduate from the gospel, that you'll be in gospel class your whole life, the remainder of your days as a Christian person. Leaving the gospel behind is what left us empty and exhausted from trying to live the Christian life in our own power. Plus, it's unbiblical to leave the gospel behind. You never graduate from the gospel. Never. Now, it's not that we can't ever talk about marriage or parenting or finances or our work life or success or relationship issues or resolving conflicts. We can address all of those things, and we do. But when we do, we seek to discover how what happened on Calvary's mountain 2,000 years ago impacts each of those things because it does. What Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago affects how I view marriage and parenting and my work life and success and relationships and friendships. It affects everything. So we are passionate about keeping the message of the gospel central. That's why we have it in the center. Central to the life of this church. Not peripheral and not just a tack on at the end of a sermon, but central. The Bible teaches that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Meaning that the gospel, when we believe it, can totally transform our entire lives as well as our eternal destinies. And so we've identified three key areas where God intends for his gospel to transform our lives. Kind of a three-legged gospel stool, I guess you could envision it as. And the first is identity. So say identity. Identity. Is identity important? Oh, my gracious. How you view yourself is super, hyper, uber important, is it not? And how I view myself. So we talk a lot around here about gospel-shaped identity. We want to let the gospel of Jesus shape how we view ourselves. And so our conviction here is that Jesus' people must grow to see themselves as God sees them. And I think as we've been looking at this for, this for several years now, this realization has been huge for our church, huge. Knowing who God says you are in Christ will progressively change everything about you because everything flows from identity, identity. If we just blindly believe what others say about us, our lives are going to reflect that. Or if we assess our worth by measuring ourselves against other people, ever find yourself comparing yourself with somebody else? Then what we're going to end up doing is finding ourselves pretending, trying to portray ourselves as something that we're really not, or trying to change ourselves somehow so that we do measure up, or working hard to perform better to gain people's acceptance and their respect. You know, some people go through their whole entire life believing lies about who they are. Did you know that? Maybe some of you. Your whole life. Because somebody spoke into your life at a young age, a parent, a teacher, a coach, an uncle, an aunt, and spoke things into you when you were really young, and all your life you've lived believing a certain false identity about yourself. Other people have gotten so many mixed messages throughout their lives that they don't know what to believe, and in their confusion, they wonder, well, who, who am I? Anyway, I was talking with a person just a couple weeks ago, and they, they basically said, I don't even know who I am. And this person wasn't like seven. 
Believing the gospel works to solve that because the gospel tells us who God says that we are. And you know who you are? First and foremost, you are who God says you are. Not who your middle school peers said that you were. And so I like to talk about six identities that God gives his people through Jesus Christ. Saints, servants, sons and daughters, worshipers, disciples, and missionaries. Saints, servants, sons and daughters, worshipers, disciples, missionaries. With the help of the Holy Spirit and one another, we're seeking to work these identities down deeper into our soul, right? So that we see ourselves as those things. So if you're a true Christian, a true Christian here today, your primary identity is not what your peers think about you. It's not what your boss says about you. It's not even what your spouse thinks about you. It's what God, your creator, your maker, says to be true about you. And so hearing and believing the gospel on ever deeper levels will increasingly transform your self-image to match what God says about you. Am I making any sense? Okay. But now, the gospel doesn't leave us all alone to figure that out by ourselves. What the gospel does is it brings us together into a gospel community so that that identity can be reinforced by other people. You see, we need our identity to be reinforced by our new community. That's why God gathers us together in local churches to, to experience and to share the life of Jesus Christ together. His, his gospel actually creates a certain kind of community. And so our growing conviction around here is that Jesus' people must experience gospel life together. It's essential. And, and for us, what that means is this. It means, it means gathering together on weekends like this, yes. Very important. But it also means going beyond this to also participating in smaller groups during the week, like Pastor Jay was mentioning just a few moments ago. And because that's where, really, that's where gospel community and its implications get worked out in that group of six or eight or ten or twelve people. It's hard to work out gospel community with a hundred people. Does that make sense? And so, as, as Jay said, there's about 80 different small groups, New Life small groups, that meet regularly in homes. Most of them meet in homes on the east side of Columbus. But I do want to be honest with you and let you know that there is not a single one of those 79, 80 groups that's perfect. They're all messy. Sorry. Even the one I'm in, and as good as our group is, <laughs> it's, it's a little messy. But if you're new, I hope you'll get in one anyway. Because if you don't get into gospel community, your church experience is going to be incomplete. Your understanding of God is going to be limited. Your, your new identity in Christ isn't going to be reinforced as much as it needs to be, and your view of heaven is going to be slanted. Because heaven is gospel community, <laughs> without any hindrances. It's in these smaller-sized groups that, that, by God's grace, we attempt to let his gospel message mold and shape our relationships with one another. So identity is about how we view ourselves. Community is about how we relate to each other, right? And so what does gospel community look like? Well, I believe it's something more to be experienced than just explained, but I'll try anyway. I like to talk about the eight traits of gospel community. So here they are, kind of machine gun style. Grace, 
kindness, patience, openness, repentance, forgiveness, priority, and service, serving one another. Gospel community looks like those things, grace, kindness, patience, openness, ongoing repentance, granting forgiveness, priority, and serving one another. If we get the gospel down into our bones, it's not going to only shape how we view ourselves, but it's going to shape and mold and form how we relate to other people. And we're going to see those things in increasing measure, even if it does get messy at times. In fact, isn't it true? It's often the messiness that allows these kinds of things to emerge. <laughs> you know, you don't need to show any grace to perfect people. But imperfect people need lots of grace and forgiveness and kindness and patience. And so this is how God works this into the church. But this isn't a two-legged stool. It's a three-legged stool. And that third leg is super important, and that's mission. And the conviction here is that the people of Jesus Christ, Jesus' people, must be on gospel mission together with Jesus. Do you remember something Jesus said to his disciples um, as he was about ready to go to the cross? He gathered his followers together in a, in a room, and he said a lot of things to them. But one thing he said was, you know what, guys? As the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. In that moment, they became sent ones or missionaries. You see, Jesus was the first real missionary, right? Where did he come from? Heaven came to earth. He was on a mission. He accomplished his mission beautifully, but he also commissioned his followers to take his mission into the world. And so this is the third, le third leg of our gospel stool, being on mission together. And of course, being a missionary is one of those identities I mentioned earlier. Jesus defined his church's mission on several occasions. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, he said, right? baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the age. That is called the what? The Great Commission. And so Jesus, as people come to embrace Jesus Christ and who he is, and he begins to change how they think about themselves and relate to other people, he also propels us out into our neighborhoods and into our communities and into our world to be his witnesses, his representatives, his missionaries. We worded the mission this way. Our, our mission here at New Life is to lead people into a transforming relationship with Jesus through the gospel. It's just our way of saying the Great Commission. To lead people into a transforming relationship with Jesus Christ through the gospel. We see our mission being carried out in three dimensions. Loving our neighbors, serving our city, and discipling our world. Loving our neighbors, serving our city, discipling our world. This last year, we coined a term. Well, actually, we borrowed a term <laughs> that encompasses all of our efforts to represent our Lord in our neighborhood and city. What's, what's the word? Love works, right? Thanks to Scott LaCrosse, a marketing guy here in our church. We were sitting on my back porch last November. I was recovering from surgery, and I was pouring my heart out to Scott. And he said, I think you ought to call it Love Works. 
And it was like, ding, 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 buzzers, flags, you know. It's like, that's a great term. So thanks, Scott. Love works. The Bible says, Lori quoted earlier, we love, we love because he first loved us. Because we've been loved by Christ. When you get filled up with the love of Jesus, it begins to seep out, right? It begins to pour out of you. And so that's our motivation for all the things we do to love our neighbors and serve our city and disciple our world. Things like offering free oil changes periodically to single mothers, hosting AA groups, ministering at rest homes, raising awareness of human trafficking like we heard about earlier in the evening, serving widows, going on missions trips, starting new campuses, and all the other things new lifers do because Jesus loves them. And they want to spread that to other people. So, did you follow all that? That was my introduction for tonight. So settle in for the long haul. No, it's not going to be that long. I like to refer to to this as our church's DNA. This is like our DNA. Gospel at the center. Gospel-shaped identity, community, and mission. If you should go on, if you're new and, and you hang around long enough and you, you, you come back and you decide you want to join up with us, this is what we're going to ask you to embrace. And this is what we're going to ask you to spread. To spread to others as Jesus becomes more and more central in your life. I should also tell you that this gospel-centered paradigm colors our view of the Bible. I have gospel-tinted lenses on when I read the Bible. People read the Bible in a lot of ways. You know that? Some aren't so hot. (laughs) Uh, Some people read the Bible as if it was primarily like a self-help manual that was given to us to help us, you know, reach our potential. Others read it as a collection of, of, you know, good moral ethical teachings that we ought to try to live by, kind of a religious instruction book. We see the Bible as the story of God's activity in the world and specifically his unfolding plan to redeem and reconcile a people for himself to dwell with forever. We see the Bible as the story of a father king, a father king forming a royal family for himself through the atoning work of his son by the power of his spirit. We see the Bible as the story of a holy creator God making a way for proud, self-centered, sinful people to be a part of that family by doing for them what they could never do for themselves, namely atone for their sin and make them holy. And so we preach and teach every week at every age level in this church from the Bible, from God's word, and we do it through gospel-tinted lenses. And so here we are at the front end of 2014, and and our our teaching team is very excited. I'm very excited to begin this new year by walking together through the New Testament book of Philippians. Any any Philippians fans in the room? Okay, I'm a big fan of Philippians. I'm I'm excited about this study for several reasons. Um, First, it's probably my favorite book in the Bible. Philippians is the first book in the scriptures that God used to really open my eyes and change my life. I'm also excited about it because it's short, four chapters, 
Some of you know we've tackled some of the longer books in the Bible and taken years, you know, to do that. It's short. We'll finish it up weeks before Easter. It's saturated with gospel truth. We're going to see that. It's got variety. As we explore Philippians together, we'll find Paul, the writer, not only explaining key doctrines and teaching theology and not only addressing uh, church issues, but we're going to see Paul addressing common life issues that all of us, us face, like worry. Any worriers in the room tonight? Anxiety. Um, dealing with problems and difficulties and hardship. Interpersonal conflict. There were a couple of ladies at the church in Philippi who were at each other, and Paul was dealing with that. He talks about how to navigate both the abundant seasons of our lives as well as the lean times. He talks about friendship and relationships and leadership. You will not be bored in Philippians. I, I promise you that. And then I'm excited about it because I believe it's timely. I think it's timely. A surprising number of the themes in the book of Philippians correspond to where we're at as a church right now, right here at the beginning of 2014, especially in light of some of the open doors that God seems to be placing in front of our church right now. And so I believe the Lord's going to speak to all of us through the book of Philippians, and he's going to lead us through it. And so take your Bible or your device and go to Philippians chapter 1, if you will. Tonight's going to be, in just a few, the few minutes I have, kind of an introduction and overview of Philippians. The letter opens up like this, and I'm, I'm going to use the NIV because in Bible college I actually memorized Philippians in the NIV, and it really messes me up when there's other translations and I'm all out of sync. So here we go. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the what? Saints. There's one of those identities. Remember? Saints, servants, sons, disciples, worshipers, missionaries. There's one of them. Saints. Is he talking to just a special, super spiritual class of people in that church? Nope. All Christians. <laughs> All Christians are saints, holy ones in the sight of God. Wow. If that's all you get tonight, that, if you let that sink in, that could change your life. Servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, which was a city, together with the overseers and deacons, that's interesting, grace and peace to you, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So grace is the root of the gospel, and peace is the fruit of the gospel. And that was a common Christian greeting in that day, grace and peace. Christians couldn't even greet one another without referring to the gospel of Christ. So let me give you some of the background for Philippians. Who wrote it? Well, it says Paul. Now, Timothy was there by his side. He was a, a companion of Paul's, his son in the faith kind of a pastor in training, very likely serving as Paul's secretary. Paul had very bad eyesight, so he dictated his letters and often had a secretary there writing it down. I take it Timothy's name here to mean that Timothy actually wrote down while Paul paced back and forth and dictated this letter. What do we know about Paul? Well, we know that he was a gospel-soaked Christian, <laughs> a gospel-saturated Christian. We're going to get to see how life is viewed through gospel eyes by a guy who lived that way. What else do we know about Paul? Well, we know he was a spiritual leader, right? He was an apostle, for crying out loud. He was a pastor. He was a church planter. Few people in history have influenced other people for Christ 
few humans in history have influenced other people for Christ as much as this guy, Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul. And so if you're the kind of person who wants God to use you to influence other people for Christ, this letter's for you. And then as I mentioned, Paul was a church planter. And I firmly believe, and I'll talk about this more in a few minutes, that God's going to call some of you to become part of a team that's going to minister the gospel at a new campus. And we're going to get to see how a church planter thinks about church and about life. When did he write it? 2006? Nope. 1994? Nope. 1957? Nope. He wrote it in 60, sometime between 60 to 64 A.D. So way, 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 way back in the first century, about 30 years after Jesus walked our planet. He was in Rome. He was under house arrest for preaching the gospel. You know, in those days, if you were in the Roman Empire and you went around saying, Jesus is Lord, that didn't go over very well because Caesar felt like he was Lord and deserved everybody's uh, loyalty. But Paul preached that Jesus was Lord and it ended, caused him to end up in prison. And so he was under house arrest in Rome, awaiting the outcome of his trial. You can read about that in Acts 28, seeing what was going to happen to him. And we'll see some things in Philippians that indicate he was kind of playing out these scenarios. You know, if I live, if I die, what's going to happen? To whom was it written? It was written to the church of Jesus at Philippi. Now, Philippi was named after who? I'll give you one guess. Philip. Philip. <laughs> Not the Philip that you might know. Philip of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great, founded this city like in the 300s BC, called it Philippi. It was a prominent city. And it was right on a very popular east-west trade route that connected Asia with Europe. So it was a commerce center, lots of people coming and going through the city of Philippi. And it's very, it was a very strategic city in that day. The church there was founded not in a synagogue, as was Paul's custom, but on a riverbank. There weren't very many Jewish people living in Philippi. And Paul's custom when he would go into a town was to go first where? To the Jewish synagogue. But there was no Jewish synagogue in Philippi. It took 10 men, 10 Jewish men, to have a synagogue. They didn't have 10 Jewish men. So there was no synagogue. Where did he go? He went down to the riverbank. He found some, lady, some women there praying. And he led a, a gal to Christ named Lydia, who was a seller of purple. And uh, then he stirred some things up by casting a demon out of a young girl. He got thrown into prison with his buddy Silas. Remember where they were singing praises at midnight while they were in the stocks, and God sent an earthquake and another guy got saved, the Philippian jailer and his household. And so they were probably the charter members of this new congregation in Philippi that Paul is now writing to probably 10 years after its uh, genesis, after its origin. This was the first Christian church ever founded on European soil. So the gospel was making its way west. And aren't we glad of that? Because it was Europeans who came here. <laughs> so this is the first church in Europe. It was started by Paul and Silas. They had responded to the, a divine call. Paul had a vision from a guy in Macedonia, which is a region of Greece, saying, come over here. And that's how they ended up going to Philippi. The church apparently had matured in those 10 years to the point of having both elder overseers and deacons, as they were both mentioned in verse 1. And we'll discover as we walk through this letter together that Paul loved this church. 
I mean, it, it, he loved the people. He felt a partnership with them. He refers to that partnership often. They had financially supported him through the years. And so he's writing to a pretty healthy church that he loved dearly. These folks were committed to following Jesus even in Paul's absence, he says in chapter 2, verse 12. That's pretty cool, isn't it? You know, sometimes when, when the big guy leaves, you know, all Hades breaks loose, right? But this church, uh, he noted, was very committed to Christ even after he had left to go start other churches. There was a little bit of lack of unity there that we'll discover. And there were some false teachers, not, not uh, super influential, but there was some presence of false teachers, some possible influence there, and he wanted to nip that in the bud as well. Well, why did he write it? He wrote it to thank the church for a, for a recent financial gift. They had been supporting him for many years. Then there was a kind of a dry season, and then they sent a gift by the hand of a guy named Epaphroditus. And so this is really a thank you letter. Thank you guys for renewing your support for me. He also wrote to ease their anxiety over his circumstances. They had heard that he was in prison, and they, he wanted them to know he was okay, and that Timothy was with him, certainly to challenge them to resolve the conflicts that were going on in the church, to warn them about false teachers, and really to encourage them that no matter what happens in life, God is working to advance his gospel. Whether it was that church in Philippi going about their daily business or Paul in prison, again and again he says, you know, all of these things are happening for the advancement of the gospel. Look, turn over on the back side of your sheet. There are some famous verses in Philippians. And maybe you've heard of some of these verses. Um, Philippians 1.6, one of my favorites. It talks about the God who finishes what he starts. And Paul wrote this right up near the front of his letter. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. How many of you have ever heard that verse before? Okay. Another famous verse, one after which we've named this series, uh, chapter 1, verse 21. Paul gives his philosophy of life and death, basically. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Have you heard that verse before? Maybe you didn't know it was in Philippians. Well, here it is. During our Christmas series, we talked about the kenosis, what Jesus gave up in order to become our Savior. And that passage is also in chapter 2. Great passage in chapter 3 where Paul basically shares his heart how Jesus is his most precious possession. He wrote, Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. You do not, not, you do not want to know what that word means in the Greek language. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Wow. What's he saying? Jesus Christ is my supreme treasure. He is more precious to me than anything and everything else in my life. In fact, in comparison, everything else in my life compared to Jesus is rubbish. Wow. Well, I know a lot of you heard this next one. Uh, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God which transcends or passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. How many of you have heard that verse before? How many of you have really leaned on that verse before? <laughs> How many have used that verse before? Yeah, I have. Another famous verse, 413, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
Paul said, God gives me the strength to endure anything and everything that comes my way. It's a great verse, isn't it? And then the God who meets our needs, Philippians 4.19, but my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Isn't it good to know that God wants to meet our needs? And Paul experienced that. Famous verses, and there's more. We'll turn back over um, the front side. There's some recurring themes that keep coming up in Philippians that we're going to see. And the first one is Jesus Christ. Fifty times in Philippians, Paul refers to Jesus. Paul was obsessed with Jesus. (laughs) Paul loved Jesus, and he couldn't help but talk about Jesus a lot. We're going to learn some things about Jesus as we walk through this letter. Another theme is advancing the gospel. Advancing the gospel. Paul said, hey, Philippians, I want you to know the things that have happened to me, my imprisonment, are actually being worked out to advance the gospel. He said, I've been put here for the defense of the gospel. He said, live your lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. You find a lot about um, mindset and thinking and, and let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, and think on these things. You find, be of the same mind. You find that a lot, thinking like Jesus. And Beginning in February, we're going to actually have a 50-day adventure together that we're calling Mind Shift, Think Like Jesus, that will be, um, we'll kind of dive deep in the, into that, learning to think like Jesus Christ. This is also often called the Epistle of Joy. Sixteen times you'll see joy or rejoice or rejoice evermore. It's, it's an epistle that's full of joy, which is very interesting because Paul was in prison, <laughs> which is not usually a joy-filled place, and yet... In his imprisonment, in his stocks and bonds in Rome, and he'd been in prison many times, he was a man who was full of joy. How is it that you can have joy despite your circumstances? One man was asked how he was doing, and he said, okay, under the circumstances. And the person said, well, what are you doing under there? (laughs) And so often we do, right? We live under our circumstances, and we let our joy get robbed, get pilfered. And there's plenty of joy robbers, so we'll talk about those. Suffering for Jesus, partnered up in the gospel, united together in partnership with a common theme and serving other people. There's a lot about serving others. In fact, there's a verse in here that, that when we get to it, it, it totally changed my life because it's like, well, that's not how I live. <laughs> when I take these themes and put them all, try to put them all together in a sentence, sermon in a sentence, it it came out like this. As we increasingly allow Christ to be our life, he will unite us in partnership with other like-minded kindred spirits to advance his gospel through boldly speaking his message and humbly serving others, strengthening us with his joy to sustain us in all circumstances. All circumstances. So with all that in mind, I want to say again that I believe this series is very timely for us as a church for several reasons. But let me talk with you in my time that remains about one particular open door for advancing the gospel that our elders believe God has set before us. And we think he's leading us to walk through it. And what I'm talking about is teaming up to advance the gospel in the community of Whitehall. For our elder team here, 2013 was a year of seeking God together in prayer and doing some fasting as well. 
about how the Lord would want us to continue to spread the gospel in our city going forward. Now, we believe we can spread the gospel and serve our city in, in many, many ways, but I think we serve it best by planting new gospel-driven churches in needy areas of our city and in strategic areas of our city. New Life has a long history of planting churches, and each time we've done it, we pretty much use the same process. Some of our daughter churches have done quite well, others of them have done okay, and a few of them ended up closing down after a few years. You know, the gospel humbles us because the gospel tells us of our fallenness as human beings, right? That we're fallen. And since it does so, our leadership here felt that God was doing gospel work in us by humbling us, by using those closings to get us to realize some things. God opened our eyes to realize that our process for planting new churches had some holes in it, had some gaps in it. And it's been very humbling to admit that we, read me, had been so overzealous in wanting to get new churches up and running that we ended up skipping some important steps along the way. And so we stepped back after these closings and we started to re-examine our process for how we went about starting new churches. And as part of that, we felt led to look once again at a concept that we'd first been introduced to back in 2006 called the multi-site church or the multi-campus church. Now, I know you guys don't think this way. You've got other jobs and things you think about, but I'm kind of paid to think this way, okay? And so let me just let you know that over the past 20 years or so, there are now 5,000 churches in the U.S. that have embraced this multi-site way of planting new congregations. It's like a strategy. It's gained a lot of momentum, especially in the last 10 years, but I needed to know it was biblical. I needed to know it was from the Bible. And so I spent my study break this summer reading through Acts, and what I realized is that the multi-site church planning movement can actually trace its roots back to Acts and back to the apostles and how they did things. That was very important for me to know. I didn't want to just grab hold of something and embrace it because it was cool or even because a lot of people were doing it. I got to know, is this what Jesus had in mind? Multi-site structures things differently. Instead of spinning off new churches that are basically autonomous and independent, God bless you guys, we'll pray for you, multi-site keeps the new congregations connected to the church. It's all one church, but meeting in multiple locations, sometimes called campuses. In, in this multi-site or multi-campus structure, all the campuses share the same Staff, the same DNA, like I talked about earlier, the same mission, the same budget, the same elders. It's not like us and them, it's us and us. Make sense? I know I'm talking church stuff to you here, but just stay with me. The more we elders studied multi-site, the more we felt that it had the potential to fill in some of those gaps, some of those holes in our process. Last spring after thinking and praying about this for quite a while, our elders unanimously decided to adopt the multi-site concept for new life going forward. This is a really big step of faith for our church. 
in part because we have never done it this way before. How many of you ever have been you know, presented with something that's like, I've never done that before? It can feel a little scary. It can feel a little risky. That feels that way to us. We've never done this before, so it's faith. And in part, we feel that way because we don't really know how it's going to work out. To us, it seems like it could be really exciting and really messy. <laughs> Excitingly messy and messily exciting. At the end of the summer, the elders authorized the formation of a small team to meet regularly and start working together on how this would look at New Life, to kind of flesh it out. And so that team's been at it for about four months. They work under the elders, and they make recommendations back to the elders. One of the recommendations is, is that instead of going ahead and setting a launch date, like we're going to start this new campus on October 1st or something like that, instead of doing that approach, which is what we've done in the past, we're going to adopt a different approach that's not deadline-driven, it's milestone-driven. In other words, certain conditions must be met before that new campus will be commissioned to launch. Twelve of them in all, twelve conditions. The new campus will only be launched when all twelve of those milestones are passed. That's going to keep the reins on overzealous guys like me who love to open doors for people so much that I've shown my willingness to skip a few steps to get them there. Does that make sense? The first two of those conditions that must be met are one, that the elders are in unanimous agreement about the community that we're going to go to, and two, that they're in unanimous agreement about who the campus pastor is going to be, who the shepherd of that congregation is going to be. Well, guess what? If you're a ministry partner here, you probably already know that those two mileposts have already been passed. A while back, the elders became convinced the Lord was leading us to have a presence in the community of Whitehall, about 15, 20 minutes away from here, Broad Street, Main Street, Town and Country Shopping Center, that area. And more recently, Pastor Claude has agreed to serve as the campus pastor of that future congregation. So there's already a lot to praise God for. There's another important milestone to strive for, and that's having sufficient funds in hand to basically cover the first year of ministry in Whitehall. Wouldn't that be cool? I mean, if we had all that in hand. And so we're asking the Lord to supply this as a way of confirming, yes, this is where I'm leading you. I mean, if no money comes in, we'll step back and go, okay, well, <laughs> we must not have uh, read the directions correctly. But to confirm his direction, and also to reveal his time frame. Like, we're not going to start until that milestone has been reached. And we're putting the need out before you, before New Life is. We estimate the startup costs and operational costs for the first year to be in the neighborhood of about $120,000. And the multi-site team is recommending that we have 70% of that in the bank and 30% pledged. So we're not going to launch it until... 70% of that, which is $84,000, in the bank, and 30% pledged. You just gave to the Christmas offering nearly $30,000. We had already raised some money through our Easter LoveWorks offering last year and some other things, so we already, we're already at 50% of the 120. Pra praise God. And so just to keep us all aware of where we stand on this from week to week, we've decided to go, go old school on you. You ever been in one of those churches where they had a big thermometer on the stage and the, it rose as, as funds were raised for something? That's old school. I mean, my church did that like 40 years ago. 
Well, what we're going to do is kind of a newer version of that. You remember that LoveWorks tank that was out in the lobby, that plexiglass tower with the balls? That's going to be our thermometer, okay? We're going to put it somewhere prominent. You can look for that real soon, and it'll have marks on the side, and it'll let us know how close we're getting to our milestone of having enough money to say, it's time. <laughs> we can do this. It's a process. This whole effort is a process, and it's a faith venture for sure. We want to see people in Whitehall come to know and love Jesus, right? To treasure Jesus Christ. We want to see marriages put back together. We want to see people get saved and baptized. Other churches that have done multi-site almost universally attest salvations and baptisms and all those things go up because Christians get excited about God using them to spread the gospel. Our elders of New Life want this to be a whole church effort, like not just something Steve's doing out there, not something the elders are doing or Claude's doing, but, but like all of New Life, like all of us together doing this. And so you say, well, what can I do? Well, everybody can pray, right? Everybody can give. Hopefully God's going to call 75 to 100 people or maybe even more to go and serve in that new campus. Some will go and, and accept leadership roles there. Others are going to need to step up here as key leaders go there, feel called to go. They're going to vacate a place here, a role, and others are going to need to step up and say, I, I, maybe God could use me. We all need to listen to the Lord about increasing our giving so that all of this can happen and the church remain healthy and strong and stable. We don't want to, like, gut Gehanna. <laughs> that wouldn't be wise. Speaking of praying, there's going to come a time when we're going to ask several hundred of you to show up, maybe at the Town and Country Shopping Center, you know, on a Saturday morning, pair up with a partner, and go prayer walking through all the neighborhoods, all the streets of Whitehall. We're big enough we could do that. I could say we're looking for 400 people to show up next Saturday and 400 people would do it and we could blanket that community in prayer in a morning and hang door, not, door hangers on everybody's door. There's a new gospel-centered church opening up here. Wouldn't that be cool? I mean, we could just knock it out because we have enough of us to do that. In fact, that's one of the conditions that the team has established. We're not launching a church in any community until we have blanketed and covered that community in prayer. That's the priority we want to give to intercession and prayer. I, I just want to share all this with you because I wanted all of you to know that, that in all of this, we are really seeking to make space for Jesus, who we call the head of the church, right? We say Jesus is the head of the church. We're trying to, to, to create space so that he can exert his influence on this process. So the head of the church isn't just some ethereal title, but it's like, no, he's actually leading us. We're, we're, we're seeking that. I know the hearts of the elders. This is, this is in all of our hearts. We want to be led by Jesus. If he doesn't want it to happen, we don't want it to happen. If he wants it to happen, and we believe he does, we want to see him work. And we want to let him determine the time frame and all these other things, because it's really all about Jesus. Paul knew that. Paul's willing to give his life to advance the gospel. It's about his fame. It's about his name being spread. It's about his plan. It's about more and more people being led into a transforming relationship with Jesus through the gospel. That's, the, that's what we're going for here. People who don't know Christ right now. 
You know, when you don't know Christ, you're on your way to hell. And so this is important stuff, like eternally important stuff. So as we walk through Philippians together these next couple of months, including that 50-day adventure that will start in February, I'm hoping that Love Works Whitehall will be an open window running in the back of your mind, like open and running, or maybe even a big old icon on the front and center on your screen, <laughs> the screen of your mind. As leadership, we're hoping that all of you will be praying about God's will in this and that you'll be giving sacrificially towards it. We're going to be talking a lot in this series about teamwork as it relates to our marriages and families and friendships and church. But I'm telling you that the best kind of teamwork is teaming up to spread the gospel. That's the absolute best, most fulfilling, satisfying, rewarding, eternally beneficial kind of teamwork there is, right? To team up together to advance the gospel. And that's what Love Works Whitehall is all about. We can all partner up on some level. So, that's my sermon. What I'd like to do is, um, in response, I'd like us to take a few moments as a church and ask the Lord Jesus to be our Lord and to lead us in 2014 and to direct our love works into the areas, you know, human trafficking and the Grin Community Center that's coming about, and now this new campus and other areas, to ask him to lead us as a church and individually into the love works that he wants us to, to take on. And so what I wanted to ask you to do is to, since we're talking about teaming up, is to team up with somebody and pray for the next five minutes. Team up with somebody and pray. Maybe right there in your seat. Maybe you want to come and kneel around here or up here. Pray for Whitehall. Pray for families you don't even know their names in Whitehall, that God will begin softening up their hearts. Pray for your own family and what God's doing in and through you this next year. Okay? So teaming up together in prayer, and then uh, we're going to sing a couple worship songs, and then we'll be done. So let's do that these next few minutes.